This icon is IKEA, yes. Yeah, it's part of the uh, IKEA instructions. Uh, this is what you're supposed to look at if you are making flat pack furniture from IKEA. Home building instructions. You can see from the general blankness that not many of you frequent IKEA. But, uh, that's, uh, uh, so let me just uh, tell you from experience that uh, if you don't look at the instructions and you don't have the correct tools, you get in a right pickle. You need uh, the big picture of what you're trying to make. You need the right instructions and you need the correct tools. And it looks as though for this particular thing, you need a, uh, not that, ah, that was not what I meant to do, uh, this button, uh, a screwdriver with a flat head, a screwdriver with a cross head, and a hammer. So I wonder what you need. I wonder what you could possibly make with that set of tools. Anyway, in God's world, we also will make a right pickle of things unless we have the instructions. Unless we have a view of the big picture, what's being built, what's the right way to do it, and what tools you need for the job. And that's one of the things that the book of Revelation does. It tells us what is being built. It tells us what tools are key in this building project. And it tells us how to be properly involved in this big project. And that will introduce us to the book of Revelation. So this morning I want to ask uh, five questions. Number one, what is the book of Revelation? Let's just imagine that we've no idea at all. Let me introduce the book to you. Uh, And then I'd like to ask these questions. What does it say to people who are not interested today? So it's a little bit of an odd question, because if you're not interested, you probably wouldn't be here. But you might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm not really interested. Well, the Bible says something to you. The book of Revelation says something to you. What does it say to people who are interested? Maybe you've come along this morning and said, I'm quite interested in Christian faith, don't quite understand it, but I'd like to know more. What does the book of Revelation say to me? And uh, fourth question, what does it say to Christians? So this is a Christian meeting, and uh, what does God say to us as Christians today? And I've missed out an important question, which is vital really. How does the book of Revelation say things? How does it speak? Because that really ought to be top of the list. Because if we don't understand how it speaks, we're not going to get what it's saying. So I might move question five up the list. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Okay with that? That's the, uh, what is the book? What does it say to people who are not interested, who are interested, but not Christians, and who are Christians? And we need to look at this, how does it speak? So let's, uh, what is the book of Revelation? So if you'd been following in the Bible this morning, uh, when Julia read, you will know that it is the last book in the Christian Bible. And it is famous for its weirdness. I didn't spell check weirdness. Is that the right way to spell weirdness? It didn't didn't come up as an error. Anyway, the, the book of Revelation is famous for its weirdness. It has visions. Don't get worried, too worried about spelling yet. Um, it has visions in it. 
has dragons, beasts, it has a lake of fire, it has battles, huge, as we might say, apocalyptic battles. It has women in it, two in particular. It has a prostitute and her opposite number, a bride. It has two cities, the city of God, Zion, and its opposite, Babylon, like the Tower of Babel, same thing. And it calls upon these uh, things of conflict and um, fighting opposites. And it is about a cosmic spiritual conflict. Now, uh, ladies and gentlemen, in our, in our culture, uh, we can have... Oh, I forgot to do the prayer, didn't I? I'm so sorry. I was going to do, we were going to pray for the nation. Okay, my mistake. And we have, we, we, we've been able to have elections just this past week. Uh, actually, in, uh, in Brighton, the political, syst- uh, the political situation wasn't totally changed, but in other parts of the country, the political situation has been totally changed. We didn't have guns. We didn't have shooting. We didn't have armed people threatening. We had change without violence. But... The book of Revelation says that despite that sense of peacefulness which uh, is in our nation, actually the reality is there is a violent spiritual conflict going on whether we notice it or not. Uh, The book of Revelation is famous for its weird interpretations. So at one point... Uh, the ten horns on the beast were thought by some people to be the ten nations of the common market. But we don't have the common market anymore. I won't go into that. But, uh, so that particular interpretation didn't have much shelf life. Uh, there was a, an interpretation, I think back in the 1970s, of, uh, that it was actually talking about Russian tanks invading Europe. That's obviously a very Western mindset interpretation. If you lived in Asia, you wouldn't be that bothered about that. You'd be thinking about China and India and Pakistan. But anyway, um, that didn't seem to happen. Um, Interpreters have said the book of Revelation proves that the last days are here. And that was said in the time of Martin Luther in 1500 and something. So that particular interpretation didn't have much shelf life either. Uh, If you read around, particularly if you look on YouTube, I guess you'll find all sorts of weird things because uh, you can find all sorts of weird things on YouTube. You have to be discerning. Um, It talks about the millennium, a thousand years. Now, that is in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 21, I think. Uh, The Antichrist, well, actually, to the best of my knowledge, the... The book of Revelation does not mention the Antichrist. It uses other wordings, so that's not in any chapter. Um, sometimes Christians get caught up in something they call the rapture, 
and that's, I think you'll struggle to find that in the book of Revelation, but when they say the rapture, they mean the, the supposition of a miraculous removal of believers from the earth while history goes on without them. I think you actually struggle to find that in the New Testament. Um, and, but anyway, there's lots of theories, and it can get unbelievably complicated and off-putting, which is one of the reasons why people don't often read that book. It's famous for its weird interpretations. But let me just tell you what it does say that isn't weird, that's uh, definite. And if you have the book there, you could open it at chapter 1. It says, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And the, the word revelation is, I put it in there from my Greek dictionary, for, uh, apocalypsis is the word. If you look at the word up on your computer, it's number, um, Strong's word number 602. Apocalypsis, meaning to take away the veil, to reveal. Now some churches have got uh, curtains behind the speaker to hide whatever is behind the curtains. It's probably a wall with plaster falling off it. <laughs> so if you just imagine curtains here, and you can see the curtains easily. But in order to know what's behind, somebody has to remove the curtain to take it back, and then you can see the reality behind the curtain. And right at the beginning, the book of Revelation says, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, you, everybody can see history and geography unfolding, but I'm going to take away the veil and show you the reality behind all of that and to show you the reality behind it and where it's all heading. It's an apocalypsis, which doesn't mean the end of everything. It means the revealing, hence the book of Revelation. shows the true reality behind the surface appearance. Second thing that we can be definite about in this book is it is a circular letter. Um, it begins uh, in verse uh, 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the faithful martyr, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, uh, that's very grand, but it's also the way you start a letter in those days. So if you're starting a letter um, politely in, um, in English-speaking culture, you would say, Dear Mr. Smith, uh, and you start off like that, and you end yours sincerely, put your name at the end. That's, that's a, the form of a letter. In those days, the form of a letter was, great, uh, My name to you, grace and peace to you. And this is a letter. It is a circular letter. It is to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And uh, the seven churches have got seven names, seven individual churches, and Julia read to us uh, three or four, four of the particular addresses to the church in Ephesus, this. 
to the church in Smyrna, this, to the church in Pergamum, this, to the church in Thyatira, this. Circular letter to specific churches. And you know how if you are writing a letter, you would write uh, specific things that were relevant to the person uh, concerned. So if I was writing a letter to Mark, I would say, Dear Mark, how are you? How was your birthday? Because it was Mark's birthday. Or if I was uh, writing to Daniel, I might say, Dear Daniel, how is your revision going? Because you've got exams. Or something, oh dear, I've upset him now. Um, (laughs) But uh, you would write something relevant. So we can deduce that this whole letter has relevance to the people to whom it was written. It was written in the time of the Roman Empire. It was written in a certain cultural setting. And that is, uh, to those people who got it, it must have been relevant to them. And one of the things that the Saviour says to those seven churches, uh, in many cases, is repent. Did you notice that? Uh, doesn't say that to all of them, but he says that to most of them. You need to be turning back to me. It is also a prophecy. We're told it's a prophecy in Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So it's a prophecy. It says it's a prophecy. In fact, it's the climax of all prophecies. So if you take all the prophetic books in the Bible, particularly something like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Jeremiah, all these huge monumental prophetic books. Uh, John takes strands from each of them and weaves them together and says, you know, my book is the fulfillment of all of this. All these streams of prophecy, I'm going to weave them together and say this is the, the, the last word in New Testament times of prophecy. A prophecy is something like projecting forward into God's future. Uh, This is where we're heading. This is what's going to happen. With action points for now. This is where it's heading. So now, this is how you should live. You got that in the book of the prophet Isaiah, didn't we? Behold, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be raised upon all mountains and... All the nations will flow to it. And then he says, so let us walk now in the light of the Lord. That's what it says in Isaiah. And in this book too, there are action points for now based on the future. Uh, So in particular, when it says it's a prophecy, in verse uh, 3, he says... Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So Julia had a blessing reading the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it. So we had a blessing listening to the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So if we take it to heart, if we go away this morning thinking, I heard something which changes the way that I live today and tomorrow then there's a, there's a blessing in that blessed are those who read it and hear it and keep it keep the things that are said in it so that was 
what is the book? Little introduction to the sort of book it is. Now then, let's promote question five to question two. How does it say what it says? Because it's an unusual book. Uh, and we need to know how it speaks. So I put it this way. What is the writer's accent? Now, a very uh, dear friend of mine who was a, a minister in Hove said, um, he said, you know, I've been speaking to the people in my church for the last three months. And one of them came up to me and said, what are you talking about when you talk about faith? I should give you a little bit of context because he was from Northern Ireland and he spoke like that. And he often talked about faith. And there was somebody in his congregation who had no idea what is he talking about. What is this faith? Now you know what it is, don't you? Because you've got his accent. He was talking about faith. 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 Believing. Faith. And in that part of the world they say faith. So you're saved, you're justified by faith. So you've got to get it, you've got to listen. It might take three months. You say, oh, I know what he means by faith. He means faith. Yeah, I get it now. And you just have to listen and, and you say, justified by faith. Oh, that's faith. I get it. Um, there's other things that you just pick up by listening. So um, when I've spoken about this in Sri Lanka, I talk about car horns or... Um, the beep beep that you have on a three-wheeler because in Sri Lanka they always driving along going beep 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 like that now in England now it would be different in other European countries but in England that's quite aggressive that would be seen as a sign of uh, aggression a hostile act why are you doing that to me beep go away um, but in Sri Lankan driving what it means is I'm here that's all it means. I'm behind you. Beep. Okay, got it. Or, I'm about to overtake you. Beep. And the person being overtaken says, oh yeah, I got that. Beep, beep. Beep, beep. <laughs> uh, and actually, it's quite a, a, a valuable a tactic because if people aren't good at looking in their mirrors, it's very helpful to tell them, I'm coming behind you and I'm about to overtake you. But you, you, it, it, it would have different meanings in different cultures, so you've just got to observe and see how people do it. So let's observe some things in the book of Revelation. His accent, his way of communicating, he uses symbols. He uses symbols. He uses symbolic names, for example. So the sort of thing in... Um, you know, Western culture would be like this. So that is a 1917 uh, recruiting poster. And there is a man with a top hat with a star on it and a sort of red waistcoat. Does anybody know who that man would be? Is it Uncle Sam? Yeah, I think it's Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam. And who is Uncle Sam? Yes, it's a way, of, a way of referring to the U.S. government. I've no idea why it's doing this. Yeah, it's Uncle Sam. Uh, it, he stands for the USA. Uh, and we've got similar things like the bulldog stands for 
uh, Great Britain, or John Bull stands for Great Britain. So it's a visual symbol, meaning, uh, in this case, the American state or the UK state or whatever it is. And we had read to us, I think, um, in chapter 2, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. So I invite you to think, do you think she was really on the membership list, Mrs. Jezebel? Do you think that was her real name? I think she's, he's using symbolically, because Jezebel was, well, who was Jezebel? Oh, Ahab's wife, yes. What, somebody said? Queen. A queen, she was a queen. Was she a good queen? No. no. Why was she not a good queen? Pardon? Yes, I think she was. She was after Elijah. She was an, an, uh, uh, an antagonistic queen. She was a pagan wife of a, an ancient king. So when he says Jezebel, he's doing this sort of like Uncle Sam thing. He, he's saying uh, this is a symbolic name. So we have to be on the lookout for that. that. That's how he speaks. That's how he does things. He uses symbolic visual type of images. So from, uh, drawn from his own culture, uh, the goddess of Rome was called Roma. So there I've done a beautiful picture of the goddess Roma. But she would stand for Rome. And uh, we get chapters about uh, a woman on a beast and seven hills, meaning Rome, I think, if we've understood him correctly. There are other things that he uses. So we've got to be on the lookout for these, drawn from the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. So locusts, says a locust. Where in the Bible do we get locusts? Plagues? Yeah, plagues. Plagues in Exodus. Yeah, the plagues on Egypt. So the locusts, there's various uses for locusts. You can eat locusts. If you're John the Baptist, he ate locusts, didn't he? But I don't think it's meaning a source of food. I think it's meaning judgment. A nasty thing that has come uh, as a judgment upon a, a city or a culture. Hail. Isn't that funny the way it does that? It's not very impressive really, is it? Um, but hail. Hail is, um, in, in the Bible, hail? Plagues. plagues, yeah, it's another plague. It's plague on Egypt, wasn't it? The plagues on Egypt. So we get hail in the book of Revelation. And beasts. So there's a very ferocious beast. Where do we get beasts in the Bible, beasts, beasts from the sea, beasts, there's Leviathan in Job, yes, I think we get some other beasts as well, well I think we get beasts in the book of Daniel, don't we, um, different beasts that come up out of the sea and chew things and destroy things, I think that's what he's picking up on that particular prophecy, um, serpent, snake, dragon where do we get that in the bible garden of eden and the serpent being who or what the devil yeah satan and satan is active in the book in fact in what we had read to us i think there are at least two references uh, about a synagogue of satan and i you did not renounce your faith in me, he says to the church at Pergamum. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, so he was a martyr who was a martyr, 
where Satan lives. So Satan is uh, part of the uh, view of this book. And so here are some of the visual, sort of very, they, they summon up visual pictures in our minds of uh, such things. Now, another thing that the book of Revelation does is use symbolic numbers. Now, we don't do this. I, don't, I can't think of anything in English-speaking culture which does numbers. But uh, uh, he does numbers. Number 12. The number 12, uh, that ring any bells? Tribes, yeah, and 12 disciples, 12 apostles, yes. So that's, a, that's a, a, a key number, the number of the tribes of Israel. So 12, meaning like the people of God, or the Old Testament people of God, perhaps. It's also the number of the apostles in the New Testament. So uh, Old Testament 12, New Testament 12. Uh, number 7. 7. 7 uh, crops up a lot. Creation. Creation, yep. And which, which particular bit of creation? Seven trees? Seven days. So God made the whole thing in seven days. And I think, having listened to it quite a bit, I think that the seven is a number of completeness. So God made the whole thing in seven days. That's a number of completeness. So when he, took, when he addresses the seven churches, he's meaning the whole church. Uh, and we'll see some other sevens in a moment. Uh, where am I? Uh, 24. 24? 24 is what? 2 times 12, 12 plus 12, yeah, 12 plus 12. Uh, and perhaps that number also is connecting with Old Testament people of God, New Testament people of God, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, uh, the, whole, um, the whole people of God, Old and New Testament. 144. 12 times 12. So I think that's, that's two lots of 12 combined in a different way. Uh, again, perhaps meaning the, the, the people of God. 12 times 12. The, one, the number of 1,000. What can we say about the number of 1,000? Thou, hmm? Lots. Yeah, it's a big number. I think we would say it's a big number. So, uh, it's a big number. So, if you t- were to take 144 and multiply by 12, you get 144,000. Sorry. If you, take, if you were to take 144 and multiply by 1,000, that's 12 times 12 times 1,000. So that's, you think of the people of God, Old and New Testament, and a big, sort of a, a big number. So I think that's the sort of way that he uses numbers. Um, and I thought I had something else on that, but obviously I don't. Now, one more thing to notice about the way he communicates. Now, I don't know if any of you know ancient languages. Can anybody tell us what that means there, that uh, symbol there? Fast forward. Yeah. Pause. Re- playback rewind. Yes. Okay, I was trying to deceive you by asking you about ancient languages. Yeah, that, uh, do you get that? This is, <laughs> this is what you see on... Those of you who remember cassette recorders... This is what's on a cassette recorder. But nowadays, you get it as an icon, wouldn't you, on your playback uh, app. Yeah. So fast forward, pause, play, rewind. And I think as we go through the book, we find that John 
presses those buttons. Would you like to look, please, with me at the end of chapter 6? <coughs> 6 verse 17. Where it says... um, The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains on the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That seems to me to be fairly clear that... When we get to chapter 6, verse 17, we've got to the end of the world. The great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? That's the end. So it seems to me that it makes sense to say that although he might hit the pause button there for a bit, he's going to hit the rewind button before, uh, in order to move on. So I think when he gets to chapter 8, verse 1, there was the seventh seal. So we had seven seals, in fact, in that section, and the seventh is the complete and last one. There's silence in heaven for about half an hour. So I think he's saying, okay, we've got to the end of that section. So we just sit down and breathe. And then he's going to hit the rewind button, take us back to the beginning and look at that whole thing again and and he sees seven angels with seven trumpets and I think he goes through what he wants to say starting from the beginning and working through to the complete end of that seven 11.15 seems to be a similar pause Uh, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven and there is a declaration of praise uh, and it talks about in verse uh, chapter 11 verse 18 the nations were angry your wrath has come the time has come for judging the dead and rewarding your servants the prophets your saints and those who reverence your name both small and great and for destroying those who destroy the earth so i think we've come to the end And uh, he might hit the pause button, but I think he's going to hit the rewind button, and so on. So I think that as you read it, you will find that the book of Revelation is in sections. So there's seven churches, which tells us the whole story of the church is seven seals, which are opened, rewind, seven trumpets, rewind, seven signs, rewind, seven bowls, Uh, and so on and if you were really neat you could say there are seven sections in the book but um, I think that's quite extra neat so how does it speak? it speaks symbolically Uh, and you have to tune in to the way that he speaks to get what the symbols are about that's those are sort of getting the idea of the accent of it so that was question five let's go back to question two what does it say to people today who are not interested so I I think if you were in that category you probably wouldn't be here this morning and what it would say is ladies and gentlemen uh, whatever else we can say about you you may be very creative you may be very kind 
you may be very thoughtful, you may be very um, educated, but without this book, you will only see the surface. You only see the surface. You will not see what's really happening underneath. And the book of Revelation says you ought to be interested because at the moment you're only living on the surface of things. You are missing out on what is really going on. And the book of Revelation would say, come and see more deeply. You can see the troubles in the world and the the, uh, book of Revelation will refer to famine and war, civil war, earthquakes, disease and anybody can see those things you you could see them but you don't understand why they're there the book of revelation tells us why they're there they have a message and the message from god is repent and god sees this whole wide world doing what it does getting on with the things it gets on with and not worshipping the God who made everything. And these troubles come like trumpets sounding and what the trumpet says is, repent. And if, uh, you, you will have heard this trumpet if you have had trouble in your life which made you turn back to God. If you heard that trumpet of perhaps illness or unexpected things or suffering or bereavement and it's made you turn back to God, you have heard the trumpet calling you to repent. That's what it says. Turn round from ignorance and indifference and irreverence. And it says... Actually, how dare you live another moment in God's universe without worshipping him? It says there's a fight, but you're on the wrong side. You swim with the tide and go with the flow, but God is calling you to go against the flow. That's how God calls. That's what this book says to those who are not interested. And it's actually a message of strong warning. If you had a little kid playing, <coughs> um, playing on the pavement and the kid seems to be straying out into the carriageway where the cars are, you would shout at that kid, wouldn't you? And the more you cared about the kid, the louder you'd shout, wouldn't you? Get back here! And the kid might burst into tears and say, that was very unkind of you, that was very cruel, why did you speak to me like that? But you say it because you care. And God shouts at people to come back to him, to repent. And that's what this book is saying. It's a message of strong warning. Because God cares about people. What does it say to people who are interested? 
maybe people who uh, uh, come along interested like to know more really would what does the uh, book of Revelation say to such people well it says that you know the world yeah, just seems confusing and incoherent doesn't seem to make sense maybe you struggle with that but there is a key there is an explanation there is a message which puts it into uh, that makes sense of it an explanatory word that makes sense of it to do with there being a throne there being somebody in charge and uh, a word about that and that that's the blessing at the beginning isn't it blessed is the one who hears and keeps what is written so, isn't it? hearing is good but living according to it is essential blessed is the one who hears and keeps what is written book of uh, revelation says there is a center of authority that rules everything and we didn't read chapter four but uh, it's all about the throne there is a throne which is a seat for a king and the throne is not empty there is a throne over this universe and there is one sitting upon the throne uh, and our job is to bow to the one upon the throne and there is a lamb at the center of the throne now when it says a lamb he's not talking about sheep and sheep farming the lamb is a symbolic term because the lamb is a sacrificial animal it's referring to Jesus Christ who came to this world to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people to be this enormous mind-boggling awe-striking sacrifice for the sins of his people and it's this lamb who is now seated upon the throne and John sees early on in this vision look I saw a lamb as it had been slain in the midst of the throne and the book of Revelation says there is authority to bow to and there is forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ and what amazing message that is all the diagnostics of the profession sociology, psychology, you name it can point out where we've gone wrong but not one of them shed blood so that we could be put right but Jesus Christ is the lamb upon the throne he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven and it doesn't matter how foul our sin has been or how vile our sin has been or how chronic our sin has been or how deep our sin has been or how complicated our sin has been the blood of Jesus Christ washes it all away and cleanses us from all sin and there is a lamb upon the throne I think it was John Murray the theologian who says this says omnipotent compassion 
omnipotent compassion. The lamb as it had been slain in the center of the throne. That's what it says to people who are interested. Come and find out about that. And uh, throughout the, the book, there is this echo of the word come. It might be come, Lord Jesus, and finish uh, what you've started, bring it to completion, or it might be you come. It's time you came to Jesus Christ. You can drink of the water. Uh, you can uh, come to the feast. There's still time to come. What does it say to Christians today? Well, it says lots of things, and it's a bit, bit of a silly uh, thing to try and summarize the whole thing in five minutes. But it's, at least it says this. There is a loving, risen Savior seated on the throne. That he's in that place of power and glory. And he also walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the seven golden lampstands symbolically are the churches of Jesus Christ. All seven of them, meaning the complete thing. And we learn from that that Jesus Christ is walking here. In our assembly today, he is here speaking, he is here observing, and he knows our every thought, our every action, our every motive, which is at the same time the most frightening thing, because we can't hide anything from him, and the most comforting thing, because he knows us, and he still loves us. We have such a saviour. There is a spirit who speaks to the churches. He who has an ear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. There is a speaking spirit who says things to his church. Or his church is. And it's our job to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And in many cases, and this is individualized, but in many cases he says repent. Doesn't he? In those seven churches, repent. And I think the safest thing to do, brothers and sisters, is to repent. And uh, the theologian Calvin would have said that's what the Christian life is, is constantly repenting. We're constantly going off course, we're constantly being turned aside to things that are distractions and enticements, and we constantly need to turn back to God. And even as we meet this morning, we can be repenting. Forgive me, Lord, for being so caught up with that. I turn to you. Forgive me for thinking that way. I want to rethink according to you and all these things to repent. It also says to the Christian, there is a battle. We are in a cosmic battle. The outcome of the battle is not in doubt. In fact, the victorious army has already been photographed. You know, like those school photographs. You had school photographs. The ones I did, we used to sit like this, you know, class 3D, and you can look back at them and say, gosh, what a funny haircut I had in those days. Whatever, that sort of thing. But uh, it's a sort of trophy of class 3D. Well, the, the picture has already been taken of the triumphant army of the Lamb of God. The outcome is secure. And there is an action point for now. And the action point is that every 
comment that Jesus makes about his churches. He makes a promise to the one who overcomes. Interesting that, isn't it? To the one who fights and wins through. In uh, chapter 12 it says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame the evil one, that is. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, they did not live their lives so much as to shrink from death. So these people are martyrs in the modern sense. But the book is about martyrs in the original sense. People who testify to the Lord and keep doing so and hang on to that faith and keep on and endure to the end. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. So we're to fight by the blood of the Lamb. That means to say, among other things, when we fall terribly and disappoint ourselves terribly and disappoint the Lord terribly, we're to get up and keep going because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We have to have faith in the blood of the Lamb. We fight by the blood of the Lamb. They fight by the word of their testimony, by their witness. Christians, we must not become ashamed of Jesus Christ. We must not get to the point where we're embarrassed to say we're Christians. You know, perhaps if you've gone on in the Christian life when you were younger, you told everybody in the most rude, inappropriate and unhelpful way that you're a Christian, you know, good on you. And then when you got older, you decided that you know, things were appropriate and less appropriate to say. But please, Lord, don't let us get to the point where we are too embarrassed to say we're Christians. We fight by the word of their testimony. And <clears throat> they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They put Jesus Christ first. They loved him more than anything else. There is a warning to the church that uh, one of the churches, you've lost your first love. You used to put the Lord first so clearly, so distinctively, so definitely, but you've gone cool on that. And he says, repent. Put the Lord back in the place that he ought to be. Number one in your life. Love the Lord most And not just for one crisis day, but every day. We'll look some more at that, God willing, next week. We're going to sing number 972.